Coming up on Tech Nation, we hear about a major new wave in global manufacturing. And why would you care? Well, would you ignore Henry Ford and the automobile assembly line? Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney tells us that technology is changing global trade on a game-changing basis. Then on Tech Nation Health, the rapidly expanding area of precision medicine and who's ready to deliver your cells, edited back to you. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft dives deeper into the news out of China, gene-edited babies. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, Poe Bronson talked about his book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. He cites numerous scientific studies, and in many, the scientists ask people to chew sponges. I asked him, what's up with that? Scholars, researchers are really interested in measuring the telltale biomarkers of competition and performance. And this technology has gotten sophisticated enough now that you can get a little saliva uh, and you can spit into a little tube or into a cup. But the easiest way to do it today is to use a salivette and you chew the salivette like a piece of chewing gum for 30 seconds and you spit it out. And the scholars will measure all sorts of biomarkers off just this little saliva test. It could be as simple as something that's looking for like alpha amylase, a broad marker for sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response activity, or you can get really specific with it, you know, down to uh, minute changes in testosterone levels to uh, the whole neuroendocrine cascade that uh, works through your body. At the very beginning of the book, uh, there was a, a scholar out of Germany who did this in the wine country, and she convinced a whole bunch of people to go skydive for the very first time. And they jumped out of a plane at 10,000 feet solo, you know, chewing a salivette to see exactly what was going on in their body exactly <laughs> the moment that of moment. terror recorded. Scaring them to death was exactly the point of I'd her swallow it. That's the problem. And, and yeah, and the, and the markers said these people are freaked out, right? But what was interesting is she made them do it uh, three times, sometimes three times over a couple days or, or, or even on the same day or even in a single hour. And what she found is that you acclimate to free-falling towards Earth at 120 miles an hour very quickly, that even your second jump, the stress level goes down by a third, and on your third jump, it's like driving in traffic, uh, that you acclimate to this very well. But meanwhile, there was this other scholar just a little north, and he was studying ballroom dancing competitions, and he was having amateur ballroom dancers who were there for the regional dance competition chew little salivettes and no matter how much experience they'd had, whether they'd had one-year experience or five years or 10 years or 15 years, no matter what, their stress response was just as high as anybody else, pretty much close to, but not quite, of a first parachute jump, which is interesting. So why can people acclimate to jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet going 120 miles an hour towards Earth, but can't acclimate 
to the unique stress of competing, because it wasn't the dancing that was causing the stress. It was the being judged. It was the sense of winning and losing, the sense of having to avoid making a single mistake. And that is very interesting because we've heard for quite a while now that it takes 10 years of practice to become an expert, to become an authority in something, to be great at it. And we felt something was missing from that success formula. That's not wrong, just that there's an additive thing, which is that we're not judged on how we practice. We're judging how we actually perform when the band is playing, the lights are bright, and the music is going. And what it turns out is that while we all have this enormous stress flood when we have to compete, we interpret it differently. And our, people, our bodies do. Our bodies physiologically interpret it differently, but our minds interpret it differently. That if you ask expert performers, professional athletes or professional musicians and the like, they all get really anxious and stressed out before a big performance. But they see that as beneficial. To them, it excites them, it awakens them, it gets them ready. While uh, novice performers feel that same sensation but think it's damaging their performance. And learning to go from seeing stress as harmful to seeing stress as beneficial is crucial to sort of really learning to manifest competitive fire when you have to. You might know Poe Bronson from his other books, including The First 20 Million is Always the Hardest, Nurture Shock, and What Should I Do With My Life? I was able to speak with Poe about Top Dog, the science of winning and losing on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney, the author of The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. We'll hear about how 3D printing and the cloud will change global manufacturing and world trade. Then on Tech Nation Health, producing cells for precision medicine on a large-scale basis, and it's coming from a surprising source. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft gives us more details on the news out of China, the announcement of gene-edited babies. I can imagine Tech Nation listeners out there thinking, why do I want to hear about changes in global manufacturing techniques? But think about the automobile. In the beginning, they built one car at a time, making them very expensive. And then Henry Ford created the automobile assembly line. Cars became cheaper. Almost anyone could buy a car. And America as we know it was changed forever. Richard Devaney is the author of The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. Yeah, Moira, that's exactly right. And if you go back to that same time period that you were just talking about, it wasn't just the affordability of cars that changed. Just think about how work changed. People used to be farmers. Now they had to go to factories to work. That caused unionization. It caused urbanization. So big cities grew up around the, the plants. 
it had a ripple effect to many things that changed society radically. So we're on the verge of the same kind of change, and I don't think people recognize it yet. You know, it's probably like uh, 1890 in, in <laughs> ancient history terms. Well, I think what's interesting here is that the Model T certainly changed America, and mm-hmm. now these technologies, and the one technology we'll be talking about uh, in particular, these technologies are changing the world. Yes, there's no question about it. And even the technology that uh, we're going to talk about, 3D printing and more generally additive manufacturing, these are going to change whether or not we source in foreign places and whether we build in foreign places, whether or not we have long supply chains. And a lot of those things are going to disappear with 3D printing because it's going to be a machine that prints from the bottom up the entire product. Uh, so we don't have to buy components and so forth. And we're working our way towards an assemblyless world. Well, that's good. Assemblyless world. Why don't we say assembly-free world? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, a lot of people will find that they have been freed up from what is essentially repetitive, boring work that forces you to join the union. And one of the things that excites people about this is the possibility of much greater freedom in their work lives. Uh, Now, before we go further, you know, and here we are on the radio, we need to Mm -hmm. describe 3D printing. And we have listeners out there who have never seen one. And so we, we need to talk about it sort of in a hold it in your hand sense. What are we talking about here? Okay. 3D printing is not really just one technology. There's about nine or 10 of them, and new ones are coming out all the time. But what I thought I'd do is just talk about the two most important methods that are getting the most play and that have, you know, almost everything else building off of. Uh, The first method is a method called FDM. And this is a method in which a nozzle sprays down a plastic, uh, just like it was printing a letter, and then it sprays down another layer, and another layer, and then another layer, or I shouldn't say sprayed, it kind of squeezes it out of the nozzle, like you were using a a tube of frosting um, uh, when you're baking a cake, or, or rather when you're decorating a cake. And it keeps going until it builds up. The other type is called SLA, And this is a process where the layers are not made out of plastics. They're made out of uh, photosensitive resins. In other words, a kind of plastic which, when exposed to light, gets hard. And so they have like a vat of this resin. Which is a liquid at that point, or a very viscous liquid. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, Good point. I should have mentioned that. Uh, And then it flashes light on the bottom end of it, and the light forms a layer, which is a very thin layer that's the shape of the object at that spot, the the part, let's say, you're making. And then the object uh, or part moves up a little bit, a new layer of resin comes in underneath it, and then the light flashes again, and it hardens it. And so it does that hundreds of times until it builds up an object, and it's pulled out of this viscous liquid vat. That method has the advantage of being able to make more intricate designs, Uh, but it's also very expensive 
compared to uh, FDM, and it only works with parts that can be made out of uh, resins, um, which many resins have like these nasty habits of, for example, absorbing fluid. So if you drop your cell phone in a sink, it's cooked, it becomes a sponge. And it also has the nasty habit of sometimes uh, melting when you put it in the sun. So if you put your cell phone on uh, a resin-based cell phone on the dashboard of your car, it becomes part of the dashboard. Mm. And uh, I remember that from years ago because I had a Japanese-made radio that was made out of these resins, not by 3D printing, but and I left it on the dashboard of my father's car, and it melted right into his brand-new car. <laughs> and, my God, I learned the meaning of uh, messing up. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, your, your father didn't buy that it was a feature. but okay. Yeah, exactly. He, he, he didn't think it was a positive. And, uh, you know, and b- before he passed away a few years ago, uh, now we have all these things we put on the dashboards of the car. And uh, uh, stuck there, and I said, "You see, Dad, I did this like thirty years ago." You, you, should... <laughs> you were, <laughs> I was you way were ahead advanced. of the time. You were way <laughs> yeah, ahead of the exactly. curve. Way ahead of I the curve. I was way ahead of the curve. Well, I have to tell you that the first thing that I think people are enlightened about is, oh, there's kind of like goop in this, whether it's FDM or SLA. Mm-hmm. It's like you're building up things layer by layer in two different yep. processes. And so they're objects that we can envision layer by layer. So not everything mm-hmm. in the world is going to be produced by a 3D printer. You know, you can't make a, a book out of a 3D printer, you know. So so there are things no. that objects that, that lend themselves to this. Uh, and they're yes. made out of certain materials at this point in time. That's right. And what's exciting is is that there's a new set of materials uh, coming online, mainly in metals and alloys and composites. So the variety of things that you can make is exploding. And so metal powders get fused together or get bound together so that they form objects. And um, uh, this is about to turn into the mass manufacturing that we all hoped it would. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Richard Devaney. He's a professor of strategy at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and you may know him from his numerous international awards, including the 2018 Visionary Thought Leader of the Decade Award from the Women's Economic Forum. He's spoken at the World Economic Forum Summit in Davos and written numerous books, starting with his first, Hypercompetition. He's here today with the Pan-Industrial Revolution, how new manufacturing titans will transform the world. You're talking mass manufacturing, but we've had a lot of hype over the last few years about 3D printers. And they're kind of like the toys of the maker world. And it's like... We're not talking about these simple little toys, right? No, no. Uh, that's the part that's uh, uh, confusing to people, I think, because most people think of it as, you know, one step up from those. You remember the little bake ovens where you oh, put something yeah, like plastic to... in it and you put it in the light bulb, hardened it up? And, yeah. And, uh, so most people think of these things as one step above those uh, those bake ovens. And uh in fact, uh, one of the uh, companies tried uh, to reintroduce uh, those 
those ovens and I forgot what the brand name is, but they revived the old brand name as well. It, it didn't sell so well because it had a little problem of burning kids' hands. Um, in the old days, so, we didn't mind. <laughs> yeah, in the, exactly. We weren't my so careful. Were, I, oh, Dad, uh, Mom, 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 I burnt my hand. She said, well, uh, what do I do? And she said, don't do that again. <laughs> you know, there you very go. Very old joke. Very Any old joke. would be proud of me. <laughs> and, uh, but with these new machines, we're, we're not talking about $200 or even three thousand. We're starting at talking around one hundred fifty thousand, up to multiple millions of dollars, and they're capable of spitting out hundreds of thousands uh, of a given item uh, at less than the cost of traditional manufacturing. So Hewlett Packard has a new machine called the. Uh, it uses a technology called multi-jet fusion (MJF). And basically what it does is it has a bunch of tiny little nozzles uh, on a bar that rolls across the top of a powder base. And it sprays onto it some kind of uh, liquids that help absorb uh, the heat from uh, an infrared uh, uh, lamp. And it, they spray on a, def a liquid that does detailing, which makes nice crisp edges so that it doesn't bleed into the rest of the, and you get some kind of fuzzy mess surface. And this machine uh, is capable already at making 150,000 copies of something uh, at less than the traditional manufacturing process with plastics and HP just announced that they've adapted the technology to include metal-based powders. And the, uh, and the next step is to have one machine which is able to um, work with both metals and plastics at the same time. And at that point, you get to be able to build entire pro products. You know, the parts that are plastic that you, uh, that you want can be built... Um, you can regulate the uh, amount of uh, pores you know, uh, inside the plastics and the metal to determine its strength um, and uh, water absorbency and uh, all sorts of things like that. Um, so the only things left is the electronics uh, that you'd put into m most products today. You, you know, you can't buy a doll uh, without uh, without some kind of electronics in it, and um, uh, so the electronics are the last thing left, but there's other companies that are making it so that with a little inkjet, um, like needles, where you can put down conductive metals, these metals that carry electricity, and they become wires, and you can put them into the body of the uh, uh, product. Let's say it's a cell phone. It'll go in the into the... Hard, Plastic and uh, metal, yeah, yeah, right in and uh, right in and and on the inside surfaces, you can print uh, right now, relatively um, uh, you know low scale circuits, but that works out okay for an awful lot of electronic equipment, and they're working on a high definition one at, at, at this company called Optimic, uh, so that. They're going to be able to actually just print the chip at the same time they print the, 
the item. And so chip manufacturers are going to disappear. And when you look at it, the cell phone uh, will now have uh, the, uh, a whole lot of space in it. So what could you do with that space? Well, you could take it out and miniaturize that cell phone so that it's a tiny little dot, um, all with 3D printing. Uh, or you could add new functionality to it. So pack in all kinds of electronics that are not 3D printed and connect them up. Uh, you could uh, uh, do a combination of the two, of miniaturization and new capabilities. You can turn your cell phone into a uh, supercomputer uh, because I was talking to people at IBM and, uh, uh, and they were telling me that uh, Ginny Romady set uh, a goal for them to reduce the size of the Watson to a cell phone. And they're well on the way because it used to be like walls and walls of servers made up these uh, 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 supercomputers. And, uh, and now it's like two racks of servers and they're working their way down to one server fairly soon. Um, and then after that, they can keep playing. It's like the nature of... Uh, Smaller, faster, uh, cheaper. Uh, evolution, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, e exactly right. And so, everybody can walk around with a Watson Which inside is, their cell the phone. That's the big computer that played Jeopardy or what, played chess? Isn't that what Watson uh, was? He, I can't remember which one it was, but it was beating humans at something. <laughs> yeah. And But it's more... But, exactly. Uh, and, 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 the, and the humans didn't like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now uh, we'll be able I'll, to see I'll, it by the time they're done. I'll, I'll give you an example of what that kind of computing power does. It allows for artificial intelligence. And so Watson is being programmed to diagnose various diseases. And they began with cancer. And they would take all of the cancer studies ever done in the world, um, match it up with your results from various tests, diagnose what kind of cancer you probably have and then come up with the exact right um, cocktail to, to serve the person or other recommendations like radiation and so forth. And they tested it against groups of individual doctors that were leading doctors in oncology. And what Watson was about 40% more effective than the people. For those course, things that are compute intensive and data intensive, you just can't beat a computer. Right. And then if you 3D print it, it allows you to miniaturize it down to the point where uh, it's a cell phone. The um, uh, uh, Another interesting development that it's not commercially available yet, but uh, I've seen people with them um, especially people making them, and that is they 3D print the tattoo directly onto your skin, and it's actually an electric circuit. And just like got a Blade Runner, I don't know if you remember the scene where he rips the electronics out of his out from underneath his skin on his on his arm. This is becoming uh, a realistic thing. And you know, you press the buttons, you make your cell phone call, it monitors your body temperature and so forth. It'll call the uh, uh, 
uh, fire department if it senses smoke around you. Uh, oh, so by uh, tattoo, you're uh, saying so you're forth. embedding electronics into your skin, underneath your skin. Yes, exactly. Before we go any further, I was fascinated. Here you are normally talking to lots of CEOs and heads of research and, you know, hey, what are you working on? And they tell you. But now with this, they're going, well, maybe we don't want to tell you what we're doing. You go to the manufacturers and you say, well, who are you selling to? And big wall of silence. What is all the silence about? Is that typical? Uh, well, it's becoming less so. But, uh, you know, I had embarrassing moments where I had panels in front of major CEO audiences run by uh, people whose names you would recognize, and I would ask them uh, about their 3D printing, and nobody said a word for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> words, 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 was, words, words, nothing. Uh, no yeah, uh, just, uh, and, and in the meantime, I know, because I've talked to people in their companies, that one of them actually makes printers. <laughs> Another one was using them in uh, its contract manufacturing and so forth. And so I finally, at the 45 minutes, I blurted out, I, I said, you people either aren't telling the truth or you better go and find out what's going on in your organizations because I talked to so-and-so in Ireland and I talked to this guy over there and uh, and then I got bounced. That was it. <laughs> they, didn't, they never invited me again back, um, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't handle it. I think there's a bunch of reasons why this is occurring. The first is everybody knows that there's a learning curve here. And the first one who learns how to use it gets better and better and better, faster and faster and faster than the competitors. So they don't want to get people started too soon. They want to delay what people think. So, so uh, um, in addition to that, I think there's uh, another reason uh, beyond secrecy for that reason. Uh, they keep a secret because they're afraid the customer isn't going to like it. Uh, so, for example, if you bought a BMW or a Mercedes that is 85% plastic parts, you'd be saying to yourself, well, what, what, what the heck is this? You know, I want to... I paid for a car that has actually some metal in it, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I, I would like to see it uh, better than that. Uh, uh, in addition, they don't want to rile up if they have strong unions. Um, they don't want to rile them up uh, because, you know, it means a lot of oh, job changes. Oh, it's going to change a lot of stuff, yeah. Right, and so they don't want people stepping in before they can produce a fait accompli by redoing factories bringing in um, uh, these 3D printers and having those replace a lot of the manual work. Uh, and uh, finally, I think a lot of them don't uh, want regulators to know uh, because the regulators, they can get themselves worked up over, you know, over putting the wrong color on a tire um, in the automobile industry, for example. And... Uh, they, uh, of course, I'm exaggerating that, but th they don't want the regulators to step in and say, hey, wait, you know, maybe these aren't as safe and we need to inspect them and approve them and, and delay the process. 
Um, we got a lot of reasons not to talk about it, not to tell exactly. you. Exactly. I've been speaking with Richard Devaney, a professor of strategy at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and the author of The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, a major corporation steps into the space of developing cells for precision medicine. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the news out of China, the announcement of gene-edited babies. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Richard Devaney, a professor of strategy at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and the author of The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. One of the things that came through to me in your book was it's one thing to have, as we do today, like these big tech foundries or electronics, you know, in Southeast Asia, and they just punch out uh, all of these chips, and they get shipped everywhere, and they eventually end up in our phones and our computers and our lights and all kinds mm-hmm. of things. Um, but we have a sense that it's there someplace, and as you were saying earlier, there's a supply chain. Metal has to come from here, silicon has to come from here, all of these things. The whole idea that there would be manufacturing sites all over the world, and then you put your specifications in the cloud, they, in all those locations, just download them, you know, suddenly we're not shipping everything at long distances. We don't have to. It's all right, right there. And then I keep thinking about, you know, the, the World Trade Organization, all of these policies about global trade, trade goes between countries and all of this. And uh, we're not counting boxes on a wharf here or an airline terminal uh, in the cargo space. We're talking about digital orders that go out over email even, referencing a specification to a file stored in the cloud, and they can produce it 
all over the world, wherever they have these machines. It's like, mm -hmm. well, what's the global trade? How do we work that out? We have major problems here. Well, I, I think it's actually not a major problem. Um, <clears throat> no more trade with China, no more trade wars, no more disruption. So I think we gain a considerable amount of uh, freedom to be and do what we want because of exactly the reasons that George Washington uh, warned us of at the beginning um, of the country when he said that we should avoid uh, entanglements with European powers. And I think now it also would include Asian powers. I'm not convinced that getting entangled is a big deal. Now, now let's also look at, suppose we do get entangled, we want to have allies. Um, but our major allies, Japan, Korea, Germany, Britain, uh, these are countries that now their number one trading partner is China. And when push comes to shove, uh, they're going to duck because they don't want to ruin their economy uh, in order to support American policies. We started with Henry Ford changing American lives. And, uh, and now, of course, all over the world is what we're dealing with. How will the impact of 3D printing be felt by people, not just in the United States, but everywhere, uh, and not only in developed countries, but in emerging countries? Yeah, emerging companies are going to have, uh, countries are going to have quite a problem because they usually emerge out of poverty by moving into low labor cost ma manufacturing activities. And those activities are going to be um, automated to such a level. And then the next level of, uh, of you know, technological uh, products will also be automated. And so these emerging uh, economies are going to be stuck in the phase of being raw material suppliers. And my fear is, is, that, is that that's going to end up being a, uh, a disaster for instability. Mm -hmm. um, and in China, as they lose lots of uh, the same kinds of jobs, if they can't replace them fast enough, then, the, uh, 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 then there'll be uh, social unrest there as well. Richard, thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you come back and see us again. I'd love to. Thank you very much for the uh, for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. My guest today is Dartmouth professor Richard Devaney. His book is The Pan-Industrial Revolution, How New Manufacturing Titans Will Transform the World. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, a surprising candidate steps forward in the rapidly expanding area of precision medicine. That's right, giving you back your own cells, specifically edited for treatment purposes, solely for you. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft provides insight into the new 
News Out of China, the announcement of gene-edited babies. He'll describe the technology used, what we know about how effective these edits were, the ethical implications, the impact on our futures, and more. Before digital cameras became popular, cameras needed film, from your family's celebrations to Hollywood blockbusters. For decades, Fujifilm was recognized globally. Today, Fujifilm has come to the United States with a new gene therapy facility. Upon meeting Steve Bagshaw, the CEO of Fujifilm Biosynth Biotechnologies, I told him outright, I've tried. What's the leap? <laughs> Back in 2000, Fujifilm had uh, just peaked in terms of film sales, and they were looking at the future. They saw digital was coming towards them really fast and so knew they had to diversify. So they went into healthcare and set up a new healthcare division of Fujifilm with the intention that by their 100th anniversary in 2034, when they, 1934, they developed X-ray film and they said by 2034, we want to be known as a healthcare company. Um, And so they started to move into that area. And eight years ago, they bought the Diasynth company and created Fujifilm Diasynth. We're a contract developer and manufacturer of biopharmaceuticals. So basically the biologic drugs that are made, we make them. Um, And gene therapy is clearly the new coming thing. And so we're getting into that. And we've opened a facility in Texas to manufacture gene therapy products. Well, many of the gene therapy products are individual, they're personalized. And you send a set of cells to somewhere, we say, and it takes weeks to actually develop them and to amplify them and do whatever they're going to do to them, and then they get shipped back. Is that where you are, right Right. in the middle? We're in part of that space. So what we're making is the the gene-edited, corrected gene that you would be taking in that cell um, therapy that you've just described there. We would have made the product that's going to join your cells and so you take your, you ship your cells to the, the facility, they get dosed with our product, and then back it goes to you. And so then you're in the hospital, and something that Fujifilm's had a part in is coming to you. Now, what are you dosing them with? Or is that secret? No, it's the... <laughs> no, the you can tell us. Yeah, the, I mean, the technical term for it is a viral vector is, is we use. Uh, but basically what we're using is the fact that a virus knows how to attack a cell. And so you're using that technology to bring the, the edited gene into to correct the cell, whatever the deficiency you've got. And there are different types of gene therapy, uh, but Fujifilm is working on manufacturing those, um, th- those viral vectors, as we call them. So when we discover that we really need an adjustment to our cells because of the fact we have a problem in a gene mutation, we take the basic DNA and then we edit it right. to be it's a correct version. Right. So then we send it to you who attaches it to a number of viruses Right. so that when you put the virus in our body, all viruses invade cells, give out its, its DNA, and that's how it gets back into us. That's right. And so our partners are the people that are developing those drugs. So Fujifilm is a manufacturer, really. Um, the partners that we have are the people that are developing those drugs. So you'll see them around the, 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 in the news. You'll see the, the Spark Therapeutics, the Bluebird Bios, the Sangamos, and then the bigger companies, Pfizer, Biogen. These people are developing those products, and we're their partners in manufacturing.
So we never know that. You just exactly. You're just in the background. That's right. And we've made it. That's been our history, basically. Over the last 10 years, we've created a company that, that manufactures drugs for other people. So you don't know you've got Fujifilm inside you. You're basically taking drugs that Fujifilm's made. We're all familiar with going to the pharmacy. We have brand name pills and then generics. And in the biopharmaceutical area, in the biologic area, um, though generic versions are called uh, biosimilars. Are you also going to be producing biosimilars? Yes. So we have a. We also have a, a, a similar set of processes that we make biosimilars. Um, again, for partner companies. So we'll be working with the major biosimilar manufacturers. They have an issue in that when it takes off, when they it come, when it come, the originator goes off patent, they have to make large quantities quickly. And contract manufacturers like us are essential partners for them. Given that almost nobody knows how to make film in the first place, what are the similarities? What are the characteristics? Of- we said that it was the green element of their film color spread that professional people love to use their photo film for. And the way they got that was by a very close attention to detail and quality in the manufacturing process. That same attention to detail they brought to the cell, cell culture manufacturing. And so we've been able to move across from film manufacturing into cell culture manufacturing and use that same approach. I like the idea that it's a characteristic. It's a culture of the company. It's culture and the character of the people who work there. This is how we do things. We don't look at a, a physical piece of technology. We look at the, the the character of the people and how people work individually and together. That's something you almost can't put your finger on. Exactly, exactly. And in Fujifilm characterizes the Fujifilm way. This is the way we do things. Um, so in terms of manufacturing, very much attention to that detail, problem solving, potential problem analysis, tools that our manufacturing people are just now very familiar with. And Fujifilm have added that to the way in which we were making before we joined Fujifilm. Now, you've opened your cell therapy plant in College Station, Texas. Why isn't it in Japan? (laughs) Well, the state of Texas and Texas A&M University set off down a road of working with the U.S. government to produce biotherapeutics. We loved what they were doing, and when we went to visit them and felt that we could bring our own ways of working to really professionalize and build on what they'd done, and so we started off working with those those guys and, and turning what they'd already started into something that will now be one of the state-of-the-art U.S. manufacturing facilities. Now, we've just had in the last year three cell therapies approved for the very first time in the United States and presumably more coming down the line. What is the market for all of these cell therapies and for the biosimilars? I think if you separate them out, the cell therapies and the gene therapies, people call them advanced therapies. People are looking at those now because they can cure people. And starting with ultra-rare diseases, which is what the current uh, crop of products being approved are, there are now rare diseases that are within sight. And you you can see some real interesting ways in which people who today have no way of being cured of what they have will be cured using these therapies. That's the excitement. Biosimilars, of course is all about the fact that these, these products invented 30 years ago, coming off patent, and now in the same way as the generics industry has changed the pharmaceutical industry, biopharmaceuticals is being transformed by biosimilars, making it more accessible, more affordable products in terms of what the patient will be able to um, take going forward.
Do you still make film? We still make film in Japan, yes. And I think it's it's fair to say that Fuji believes that its DNA is in film. Well, Steve, thank you so much. I hope you come back and see us again. I'd love to. Thanks, Moira. Steve Bagshaw is the CEO of Fujifilm Diasynth Biotechnologies. More information is available at fujifilmdiasynth.com. That's Fuji, F-U-J-I, Fujifilm Diasynth, D-I-O-S-Y-N-T-H, fujifilmdiasynth.com. We've all been taken by surprise with the announcement out of China of the birth of gene-edited babies. I spoke with Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft and asked him, can you describe for us what exactly happened here? Well, we're talking about now the opening of this Pandora's box, the ability to genetically edit an embryo at the stage of in vitro fertilization. And what's been reported by the scientist, a bit of a rogue scientist out of China, is that they didn't just edit this embryo in vitro in the test tube, but they've now implanted that in a mother who took it to term, and two baby girls were born by report, which are now the first genetically engineered babies at birth. And that's a, a big deal, because it opens up, again, the, the, a bit of that Pandora's box, ethically and otherwise, uh, and also potentially a, a bright and a potentially dark future where we can edit our children before they're born. Now, if we're talking in vitro fertilization, we're talking about how a sperm met an egg, became fertilized into a cell, and that cell started dividing. And each of those cells have DNA in them. And those cells, when they get to a certain point, are implanted in the mother. Now, did they edit each one of those cells? Did they change each one of those cells? Well, what they attempted to do at that test tube stage was to inject through CRISPR these new genes and do some editing, ideally to hit all the cells in that embryo so that when that child develops, that gene edit occurred in every single cell. That's sort of the potential goal, that we have sort of a clean edit in every copy of every cell. In reality, what seems to have happened, and certainly in this first case, is more of what's called a mosaic. Not every single cell got the same gene insertion, or some may have been what's called off-target, maybe not in the right location. And so there may be a very much of a blend of cells and changes, which could be dangerous. It may mean that these off-target effects mean that that could create health issues downstream for that for that baby, that individual. It could be that uh, they inactivated or activated a, a different gene, a cancer-causing gene, or it may have done what they targeted here. In this case, was to modify what's called the CCR5 protein, which is a protein involved in enabling the HIV virus to enter cells. And so the logic between this highly ethically challenged experiment really was that these babies would be born protected from uh, the ability to be easily affected by HIV, which is a disease they didn't have, may have had a risk for given that their fathers were HIV positive, but in this case was not curing a disease. And there are many other approaches to prevent HIV infection in utero while the baby's under gestation or after they're born. How do you prevent HIV in utero? If the mother has HIV, there are drugs, the classic one being AZT, one of the earliest HIV antivirals that you can give to the mother that's been shown to dramatically reduce uh, infection then of the fetus and the baby's born uninfected. Uh, and certainly other drugs you can give after birth if they're exposed to HIV from a parent or other sources. So in this case, the excuse here was to modify the gene in vitro at the, at the IVF level uh, and then implant that in 
develop a child who had some resistance to HIV, but that was not certainly a medical requirement. It wasn't curing a disease or preventing one. And one of the sort of most important elements we're trained in medicine is to do no harm. This experiment really uh, could do harm, we don't yet know, and wasn't actually treating a disease that couldn't have been uh, dealt with separately. And so this is one of the applications of CRISPR. We've seen it in the news. We've heard about it. We see YouTube videos about it. But the real thing here is that cell by cell, this CRISPR technology can take a strand of DNA, among other things it can do, a strand of DNA that protects you, as you say, from the virus uh, inserting itself into your cell. And it's going down to each cell and inserting it into that DNA. And that's basically what it does, a really simple idea, but it can go very wrong. Right. In this case, trying to modify an existing gene so that that protein may not be expressed in in all the cells of that individual. But we've already seen CRISPR now being used in adult cells. You can take cells from your circulating blood. And in China, this was also pioneered to take out T cells and use CRISPR gene editing to modify them to be more anti-cancer, as an example. We've looked at CRISPR and other gene editing modalities to treat um, relatively common genetic disorders like sickle cell disease or cystic fibrosis, where there might be a single base pair, one change in the, in the DNA, and use gene editing to target that and fix that in the adult individual. And so those are much more established and hopefully safer paths to pioneer some of this gene editing rather than going all the way to the embryo. And of course, it opens up the ethical questions. How far could you take this, not just to potentially prevent a disease, but knock in or out genes that might optimize for intelligence or certain personalities or athletic ability? So we're entering this potentially brave new world where the ability to modify an embryo could go in positive or potentially dangerous directions. Now, going from here, these babies grow up to be adults. They turn around and have children. That edit goes all the way through to the next child, right? That's right. It's now theoretically in their germline, in the eggs if it's a girl or the sperm if it's a boy. And that creates very long-term potential interesting implications. And one of the reasons that the international science world is so up in arms about this is that while we've known this might be possible, it wasn't necessarily even following the well-thought-out scientific method. There may have been issues with consent. The parents were consented by this, phys- uh, not even a doctor, a scientist. He's a physicist, I believe, uh, that this wasn't necessarily done with all the safeguards in place that we would normally instigate in a clinical trial. And yes, certainly because these genes may be not only lifelong in these born children, but have implications for their offspring, uh, it's a very slippery slope and takes careful consideration and consensus if we're to take this forward. What we don't want to have happen is when we have some really useful applications for, for CRISPR or gene editing at the in vitro level to sort of spur or to mess up the entire field, as has happened with early gene therapy experiments, the famous Jesse Gelsinger experiment, where an individual named Jesse Gelsinger had an early viral anti had an early gene um, editing approach, which caused uh, a lethal infection, and that that put the whole field of gene therapy back decades. So it's a very exciting area. It's moving quickly, and sometimes more quickly than people may want. And we need to be careful about the science, the ethics, and bringing the whole community around this as we move it forward in a stepwise, not too rapid manner. Now, you use the term germline, and I've heard that. What does that mean? 
our germline are the cells that we have in women, in the eggs, in the in the in the ovaries, and in men, it's in our sperm. That's our that's our germline, and there's stem cells in our testes that can make more sperm. And if you change the genes there, that's a germline modification. Now, it's not going to be a germline modification in the ovaries. You're born with every uh, egg that you have. Correct. But if you made that change and the edits occurred at that in vitro stage of the blastocyst before it's implanted in the womb, that means all the eggs that develop in that little embryo will have that germline modification. And if that child grows up and has their own children, those gene changes will be passed along. So we're really uh, playing with some uh, fire here, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) It's like it's hard enough to explain it. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, we really really don't know a lot about what's going to happen here. And not all of this is going to happen in an FDA-regulated, scientifically rigorous way because these technologies are moving so quickly and in some cases are pretty easy to do. You know, you could be in your garage at home and do CRISPR modification of a, of a, of a cell line that you keep going in your, in your refrigerator uh, or your incubator. It's becoming easier to do. We're democratizing the ability to hack genes both to read DNA and to write DNA. And that means it could be used for nefarious purposes. There's been individuals and groups that have tried to modify the flu virus to make it weaponized. There's the idea now that groups, whether in China or elsewhere, may go rogue and start clinics where they're not just modifying in vitro for you know, CRISPR-modified babies to prevent a disease, but to knock in or out certain qualities, certain traits. And that leads us to that, quote, brave new world where we may have genetic haves and have nots, That movie Gattaca, which is a 20-year-old movie, opens up a lot of that Pandora's box. What happens in society when they're the genetically privileged and the unprivileged? So it's uh, a challenge and opportunity for us all to think a bit downstream as technologies like CRISPR gene editing, which have only been around for six or seven years, are really rapidly moving from the test tube now into the womb. And I think what's so important, and thank you for being so precise here, What's so important is that we understand what these technologies can do and what it is doing at the point that the intervention occurs and what it can't do. It's not just doing anything. It's not just um, we'll make it up and we'll start projecting out what's going to happen. There are very specific things it could do. So I think we really need at this point to be very careful in our thinking uh, because otherwise the conversation can go way off course. And also to realize that many traits and diseases are what we call, you know, multifactorial. There's many genes involved and it's still a big challenge to understand what genes you would even modify to both optimize or prevent a, a disease or a trait. And so as we open up Pandora's box, there's certainly going to be experimentation. It's going to happen in sometimes unethical ways. What we can do as a community and as a society and as a scientific uh community is to hopefully hold, hold folks to account, as this ch- Chinese scientist is, is, is being held to account this week, uh, and hopefully be more mindful as we progress not to go too fast and to do that in a, a thoughtful and scientifically rigorous manner that can benefit everybody. Now, at the beginning of this interview, you mentioned that not all the cells uh, were changed. Only some of them were changed in in each of the twins that were born. Um, How do we know that? How do we have that information? 
Well, it's only just yesterday that some of the data was shared at this global genetic engineering conference held in China. And I believe the early analysis shows that, again, it wasn't a clean edit, that if you looked at many cells from that patient, uh, that baby now, uh, they don't all show the same genetic modification, which means that at the stage where they're doing this CRISPR engineering, it's not just a single cell. It's a couple dozen. Maybe not every cell got the gene edit. And so as those cells progress through embryogenesis, as we call it, the development of a, of a baby in the womb, uh, the ones that got the gene edit took that gene change into those cells and tissues and other cells and tissues in that same individual do not have it. That's this mosaicism. Some of you may have seen corn with different color kernels. Those are mosaic type corns. Same idea here in general that when we're talking about, talking about gene editing and gene therapy, it's not always going to hit every cell and every tissue in the same way. And so this is now public information, and we know it early on. This is public as as much as has been disclosed by by this scientist, quote-unquote, out of China. It's not yet been peer-reviewed or published, so there's going to be a lot of scrutiny about this early data, which will hopefully inform much more well-thought-out um, and carefully done experiments as they are in the future. And not to put too fine a point on it, in in prior announcements of other kinds of technologies, sometimes they did not pan out. They, under peer review scrutiny, it actually wasn't exactly what had been presented. So let's put that that note on it right now. Absolutely. The proof is in the pudding. It shouldn't be too hard to actually demonstrate what's happened here in this particular setting. But there have been, and still happens, very significant cases of scientific fraud uh, still ongoing. And partly that's partly due to the almost insane pressures on academics to publish or perish, um, not just in the gene editing world, but in many others. So we do need to take these things with a grain of salt and look at them in rigorous ways and, and make sure that the data and the science and the experiments before they're even done are well peer-reviewed and go through the normal uh, ethics process and clinical trial review. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you, Moira. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.